Well, let us go together to God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can begin turning to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, and we will be in chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews 10 will be our text as we walk through the second of our five weeks going through a short series I've entitled Five Marks of a Healthy Disciple. Uh, nothing is better in this life, nothing is more important, certainly, than being a disciple, a follower of King Jesus. And what we want to do with this series is using the lamp of Scripture, illuminate our lives afresh. If we would say, yes, I want to follow Jesus with my whole life, to ask the question, well, how do I do that in my daily life? And in what ways is my heart leaning into the Lord? Or in what ways am I wandering and need to be drawn by His grace and mercy back to Him? And so we began last week with five questions uh, in order for us to consider these marks of what it means to be a healthy, growing follower of Jesus. And I want to remind us of these five questions. Uh, last week, we began by asking the question, when do I worship throughout the day and the week? And we talked in particular about the challenge of opening God's word uh, and beginning our day in word and in prayer and just spending time in the presence of the Lord. Uh, this morning, we are going to consider where do I grow with others in biblical community? And the remaining three weeks that we will have, we're going to look at the questions, how am I serving and building up the church? Who in my life and in my city needs to be reached with the gospel? And then finally, what do my time, talent, and treasure reveal about my priorities? So today we consider where is it that I grow with others in biblical community, meaning in what intentional, consistent place and time Am I with other believers that we are together drawing near to the Lord and growing closer to Him? Uh, some of us are there. We're experiencing growth and we're maturing in Christ and we look forward to being in one another's presence, uh, questioning and encouraging and sharpening one another. Uh, and others of us, if we were honest this morning, would say, I don't know the people who are sitting in this room with me this morning. But in either case, I have good news for you, and that is that Jesus' grace, his goodness, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And from his word, we will be reminded this morning that not only has he made a way for us to be together with God and with his people, but he is inviting you afresh into that kind of a relationship. Now here in Hebrews 10, just to give you a, a quick understanding of where we are, for nine chapters, the author of Hebrews, who is writing to Jewish Christians, has been reminding these people that Jesus is the promised Messiah. For nine chapters, he has said that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Old Testament prophecy, that he is the new covenant, that he is superior to the angels, that he is superior to Moses, he's superior to Aaron the high priest, he is the new temple, he is the ultimate sacrificial system, and he is the savior of the world. And so now we come to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, the turning point in this book, and the author writes, therefore, therefore, in light of all that we have seen about the goodness and the realities of who Jesus is, this is what we should do about it. And his command and his invitation is going to be to draw near to God in personal relationship and draw near to one another around Christ. Gospel exposition will now move to gospel application. To put it another way, the doctrine of Christ will now turn us to the duty and the delight of being a Christ follower. 
So let's read together now. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hear the good news of the gospel this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We are humbled by it and we are amazed by it that you, Lord Jesus, out of your kindness have done for us what we cannot do ourselves. Thank you that your eyes turn to us. Thank you that you have come in word, you have come in action, that you have poured out your mercy towards us. And Father, in response to your grace, Lord, we desire to follow you. Uh, Even today, Lord, we desire that in our hearts we might more fully hand over our lives, hand over control, hand over leadership of our lives to you. And Father, would you draw us afresh closer to you and closer to one another in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two ways this morning that we must respond to what Jesus has done for us. The first of these we see in verses 19 through 21 is this. Jesus has made a way for us to be together with God. Jesus has made a way for us to be together with God. Listen one more time to the first several verses that gives us sort of this preamble before the ultimate application. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. We pause right there. We are given two realities about who Jesus is saturated in the language and the imagery of the Old Testament to show us the power and the good news of what has happened here. I think many of us can identify or have experienced, unfortunately, uh, the reality of separation from someone that we love, Uh, of separation in particular from family whether that be the experience of a a husband and wife who are separated, regardless of the reasons, for some amount of time, that there is sadness there. Uh, Or maybe you personally have experienced or you've walked with someone through the pain of divorce and there's that separation from someone that you love or, or maybe that love has gone away. How much more a relationship with a child uh, that, that a child might be perhaps estranged from their parents and, and whether you're a new parent or you're a seasoned parent, you can imagine the pain of being somehow separated from relationship with your kids. Um, I had a, a quick overnight trip to Lakeland this week to gather with the Florida Church Planting Network, about 10 other church planters here in the greater central Florida area. And uh, we get together for 18 hours and just get to, to swap ideas and pray and encourage and sharpen one another. But for those 18 hours, my sweet, sensitive little Lola I'm pretty sure did not stop crying. She missed having me there. 
Um, I am grateful for every single one of those tears. Um, But the reality was that in her little heart, she felt a, a separation from me and she grieved that separation. Such is the picture of the realities of the gospel. I wonder how often do we think about the reality of sin here on earth from God the Father's perspective, right? If we, if we consider big picture what is happening when we sin, the reality is, is that God, a loving, gracious Father, has created all of humanity carefully, intentionally, beautifully, made us in his image, says the scripture, and that since Adam and Eve, every single one of us have turned to God and said, I don't want you. That is sin. That is the nature of rebellion, Adam and Eve kicked it off, off for us, but do not think yourself better. Were you there, you would have done the same thing. And we live outside of the goodness and grace of Christ in a position of rebellion. Scripture even describes it as a relationship of enemy towards God, our Father, because of sin. This is the bad news of the gospel, that every member of the human race has sinned. By our rebellion, we have separated ourselves from God but Jesus. But look what God the Father has done in sending Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus, sent by this same loving heavenly Father, has made a way for us to have relationship and come back to the Father. This is a historical reality grounded in what took place in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God gave his people the temple. God gave his people the priesthood. These were not complete in themselves. They were a shadow of something greater to come. They were in themselves an object lesson to show God's people that he himself was going to restore relationship. He was going to solve the problem of our sin. So if you know anything about in the Old Testament, there was a Jewish temple. And in the Jewish temple, simplest version, there was an outer court known as the Gentile court. There was an inner court that only Jews could come into. And then there was the Holy of Holies, the centermost part of the temple that essentially no one was allowed into because God's holy and perfect presence was there. However, this picture, this shadow, God had given them the instructions that the high priest once a year on what's called the Day of Atonement could enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would take with him what can be described as the best possible, perfect, unblemished lamb that they would have sacrificed. And he would take the blood of the lamb and he would sprinkle it around and on the holy of holies as a a payment for sin, as an atonement for sin. But understand clearly, if they had sacrificed every lamb in the entire world, it would not have ultimately solved their sin problem or our sin problem. And so Hebrews picks up this Old Testament language and explains it in the reality of the gospel. It says, when Jesus' flesh was torn, when he, the precious lamb of God, when his blood was spilled, when Jesus' blood was torn on a bloody cross 2,000 years ago for us, at that exact moment, the Bible says in the New Testament, that the curtain, the veil, that separated the rest of the temple and the rest of the world from the Holy of Holies, that that veil was torn in two from top to bottom and access to the Father was restored in that moment. 
Jews in the Old Testament longed for the day that a Messiah would come. And we as believers in the New Testament look back to that moment and understand that in Christ, anyone who believes in him as their Lord and Savior can and will be saved. That we can have a confident, genuine, real, personal, welcomed relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus' perfect, sufficient sacrifice for sin. Jesus is our access, is what he is saying first. But then he goes back to this Old Testament imagery, and he says that Jesus is also our advocate. Jesus is our access, and he is our advocate. The priest advocated in the Old Testament for God's people. He would plead for mercy on behalf of the people. But even this high priest had a a critical problem, didn't he? He was a sinner too. When he would offer sacrifices for the people, he had to offer sacrifices for himself as well because he and himself was not enough. If you're reading through the Seeing Jesus journal, Seeing Jesus Together journal with us this week, you came across 1 John and chapter 2. Verse 1 of that chapter says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, Jesus is our defense eternity before God the Father. You have to understand that God is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. If he does not do both perfectly, then he is not God. God the Father has the right to judge us. We love the language of, you, you can't judge me. You have no right to judge me. You are correct in what you say, but God has the right to judge our sin. And, and, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to plead our case on our behalf. But Jesus doesn't just do, do that. If, if we can imagine a courtroom scene and Jesus is defending us in trial, Jesus climbs over the desk, comes up to the judge and says, here is their defense. Punish me instead of them. And in the moment that Jesus went to the cross, he did exactly that. He took the punishment for our sins. And the requirement from us is nothing. Nothing but faith to believe that Jesus has done for us what we cannot do ourselves. We were guilty. He made us clean. We were separated and he reconciled us to God the Father. And if you have put your faith in Jesus for salvation, he has done this for you already. He has removed your sin. He has torn down the veil of separation and has brought you back into relationship with God the Father. And if you have not, then you stand this very day still separated from God the Father, still deserving his judgment and still missing out on the free gift of salvation that Jesus this very day offers to you. The invitation here is clear. The author of Hebrews says, draw near to God and draw near to him because Jesus has made a way for you to draw near to him. That is the voice of truth. The voice of Satan would love to say this. In the middle of the reality of the good news of the gospel, the voice of Satan would love to say to you today, your sins are too much. Your shame is too much. God could not possibly love you. He doesn't want anything to do with you because of your past, because of the mistakes that that you have made. You're never gonna change. You failed too many times. It's too late, says the voice of Satan. 
But the voice of God the Father says that Jesus has made a way for you. The voice of God the Father says, I love you. I desire to have relationship with you again, so much so that I sent my one and only son for you so that you could be with me as beloved children of God, no longer estranged, no longer separated. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. (laughs) The only thing we contribute is our guilt. The only thing we contribute is our rebellion. God has given us everything and he has said, come to me. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I say to you this morning, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and said, I want to follow you, let today be the day. The message is clear. Admit that you are a sinner, that you have turned away from God, and he will forgive you. Ask him, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want my sins put on the cross, and I want your perfect righteousness put on me so that when God the Father looks at me, he'll see your perfection. And you can know for certain that you'll spend eternity with God the Father in a very real place called heaven. Do, do not delay. I don't know what you brought in with you this morning. I don't know what guilt or frustrations or anger you brought with you, but Jesus says, leave all of them at the foot of the cross and come and follow me. Number two, number two, as the follow-up to what the author of Hebrews wants to tell us, we see in verses 22 through 25, Jesus has made a way for us to be together with the family of God. We get to taste a small piece of heaven here on earth when we gather together with other believers who have experienced his grace, still struggle with sin, but want to draw near to God. And we do that best together. Three times you'll notice here again, the author of Hebrews will say, let us, or in other words, let's do this. Let's do this together. Listen to 22 through 25 one more time. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In these three invitations, we get the three greatest of the Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Jesus has opened the door to eternal relationship with the Father. And so now we say, well, what do I do with it? And this is the answer. We grow towards God in faith, in hope, in love, and we do it together. Everything about this passage is plural, is gathered, is all of us together. Now, asking Jesus to be your savior is a personal decision that you must come to him and ask for salvation. But as we move forward in the Christian life, everything else about it is together, is gathered, is corporate, is the language of family. And so Hebrews gives us this application point, do not neglect meeting together. What is he saying? He's saying that every single believer needs biblical community. We need to be together around Jesus. We have been made by God to need and to desire relationship with one another and with him. And hear me very carefully. 
attending Sunday morning worship, showing up on an attendance sheet is great, but it is not enough. In the three minutes that we dash for coffee, you cannot possibly be gathered together, knowing one another and drawing together in Christ. We need to know others and be known in the same way that Jesus continues to do that in our own lives. The Bible says, confidently draw near to God, and he says, do it together. The primary way that we do that here at New City Church is through city groups. Uh, maybe this is different than any other experience you've ever had. Maybe this is different than any other, uh, another church that perhaps you were a part of their family in the past. Um, but here, I want to invite you to specifically be a part of a community, a part of a family in Christ to not just show up Sunday and dash in and dash out as fast as you can and avoid eye contact, but rather to experience knowing one another. God communicates his grace through other believers, through times together around his word, praying for one another, caring for each other, meeting physical and spiritual needs together. And I want to challenge you that your life is incomplete, and I'll go so far as to say incorrect, if you are living it in isolation. Listen to how Jesus sort of helps flesh out this conversation for us. In John chapter 15, Jesus gives us this amazing sermon, essentially, where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. But I want to tease out three verses as Jesus walks us through the progression of his thought. John 15 and verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, the vine, and you all, you plural, are the branches. Okay, so the idea immediately here is you must be connected to me. And also the reality that we'll see is that healthy things grow. Okay, when you're attached to the vine that is Christ, you will grow. But then here in verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You see the progression. The Father, the way that he loves me is the way that I love you. Now fast forward to verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The father has loved the son. The son has loved you. And we ought to therefore love one another. The opposite is also true, that you cannot truly love someone if you have not experienced the love of Christ. There is a sacrificial nature to the way that Jesus loves and invites us to love one another. What's the point here? I and we, we must push against the, the tidal wave of isolation and abandonment that is our culture. I am 40 years old. I have not seen every era of life, but I think from my vantage point that we are more isolated now than ever before. Certainly in our current American culture, whether this be specifically because of sin, and certainly it is, or it be the effects of technology, the realities of COVID over the last three years, political disagreements, social tensions, and whatever else you want to season in there, we have lots of reasons and excuses that we push away from one another and we go and we hide in our little homes. I shared this article with you last year. It's worth reading again. Phil Mobley wrote an article entitled, COVID-19 Exposed a Pre-Existing Pandemic of Isolation. 
A U.S. survey in 2018 by Cigna and Ipsos found that most American adults are considered lonely on the UCLA loneliness scale. I had no idea there was a loneliness scale, but there is. With single parents, those living alone, and those in Generation Z, Generation Z is ages 18 to 22, those folks have the highest loneliness scores. 18 to 22-year-olds have the highest loneliness scores. My brothers, this ought not to be so, to quote James. Harvard Business Review has charted the physical and mental harm associated with loneliness and has shown a negative impact on health that they say is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That there is a, a massive negative effect to being isolated. Or if you are the one put in isolation and you have no control over your situation, we call it abandonment. And certainly we see both in our broken world. But the problem is not just out there, those people. The problem is in here. The problem is within our church as well. When we do not love or care for one another well, but also Satan would love to sow this mentality and this idea. And you hear it very often in culture, which is essentially, I'm a Christian. It's just me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody else. And if we're talking about the reality of salvation, yes, I cannot save you. But outside of that, you are wrong. It is not just you and Jesus. Aside from the text that we've already looked at, let me challenge you with this idea. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus picks up the Old Testament commands and reinforces them. And when he's asked the question, what is the most important command? What's the most important thing for you to do? Jesus answers how? Love the Lord your God. First and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the second commandment that he says right beneath that? Here's number two, guys. What does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not take the route of the Pharisees, right? What do the Pharisees immediately do to that? They question it. Well, hold on, Jesus. Let me just ask you a quick question. Let me ask you a question so I can figure out what is the bare minimum amount of loving my neighbor that I have to do? Who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus honors their absurd question by giving them the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And the answer through the story of the Good Samaritan is, who is my neighbor? Everybody. Everybody. Jesus, make that, make that category of people I have to care about as small as possible. Jesus goes, <laughs> it's everybody. So is my neighbor uh, people in this church? Yes. Is my neighbor people outside of this church and in our city and in our world? Yes. The reality of loving God immediately flowing out of that is to love one another. And we have a multitude of texts that command us explicitly to love one another inside the church and to love those outside the church and invite them into the same saving relationship that we ourselves have experienced. We exist in biblical community because God exists in biblical community. Uh, the Trinity blows my mind. I cannot fully wrap my head around it because I am a finite person. I am one person and one being, not so God. God exists in community. He is three persons and one being. And he has designed us in his image to need and to desire community as well, to be together with one another. The biological family of mommies and daddies and children? Yes, absolutely. But also a spiritual family in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, 
whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And then he ends, the author of Hebrew ends with this command. He says, stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up one another to love and good works. There are many places in scripture that we could get another snapshot of what does that mean? How do we do that? How do we spur and stir up, incite, encourage one another to love? Look with me at Acts chapter 2. This is verses 42 through 47. This is where we take the blueprint, the schematic for our city groups. And you'll see very clearly five things that it means to be together in growing community in a city group. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord had added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is what a city group is. This is what a city group does. Bible studying, fellowshipping, sharing, meaning sharing of physical and spiritual needs, praying and reaching out, inviting others in. Bible studying, fellowshipping, sharing, praying, reaching. I want to challenge and encourage each one of you to join a city group this year, whether you've been a part of one and enjoyed that fellowship, or maybe you have not taken that step before. It is integral to who we are as believers and who we are as New City Church. Um, Our church, if everyone shows up on a Sunday morning, is over 200 people. I cannot shepherd and care for 200 people, nor is that our vision. Our vision is that we care for one another. We are a priesthood of believers and able to care for one another. We have three uh, amazing city groups, and you'll get a chance to interact with them in the back uh, after we dismiss uh, in a few minutes. I would encourage you to join those. And I will also simultaneously say that three groups is not nearly enough for a church our size. Um, It is my prayer that through the course of this year, Um, that we would see four, five, six more city groups that would launch and would be raised up, that we would continue to love one another well and create a landing space for new people as they come in the door, that they have a place to connect throughout the week. So I'd say to you, if you have been a, a member and been a part of our fellowship for the last several years, maybe God is challenging you to step into that role in particular, to open up your home or use New City Central down the street to gather believers together and spur one another on to love and good works. Hebrews says this, Jesus is the way. He is our access. He is our advocate. Out of grace and love, he has made a way back to the Father. And as a result, that we can gather together and experience in a deeper way his love, his mercy and goodness when we do it together. Amen? Let's pray together.